The Fanboy, episode 120. everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 120 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, look, I gotta start things off with a mea culpa. I gotta start things off by making something right from last week, because you see, last week, I somehow managed to go over that entire insane Marvel Star Wars news explosion that came out of the investors call the day before. I managed to cover like 98% of that, but I managed to somehow forget to mention one project that was announced that I'm extremely excited about and that I'd love for us to discuss for just a few moments here to start the show off. And considering the end of this episode is going to feature very spoiler-heavy Star Wars conversation coming out of the Season 2 finale of The Mandalorian. You know, that's going to be spoilerific later on. So for now, I just want to talk about the one bit of non-spoiler Star Wars news that I really want to discuss this week. So here, here's your non-spoiler portion of our voyage to a galaxy far, far away. And just remember, later on, towards the end of this, and I will let you know before we venture into it, we're going to be talking spoilers because I, you know, one of the benefits of delaying this week's episode by a day meant it gave me a chance to watch the season two finale of The Mandalorian. And there's a lot to talk about there. So I'm excited to do that. But since I know not everyone has had a chance, it's only been out for like 36 hours so far. So I know a lot of you have not yet had a chance to watch it. So that's why let's do the non-spoiler stuff up front. So in non-spoiler epic Star Wars news that I somehow managed to not bring up last week, um, Patty Jenkins is about to take a journey to that galaxy. That's right. Patty Jenkins is coming to the world of Star Wars. She's going to be directing a movie called Rogue Squadron. And she released a really cool little preview video. I mean, it's not of the movie, but she it's like a little teaser video of just herself basically like talking about the job, accepting the job, and talking about like why it excites her so much. Because her father was a fighter pilot. And she had all she has all these stories in her head, imagery and 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 storytelling sort of hooks, I guess, that have been in her mind for year for years and years from being the daughter of a fighter pilot and hearing the stories and I guess seeing, getting to see him fly and all that other good stuff. So she's going to get to bring that passion for being a fighter pilot and all of the awesome cinematography and storytelling conceits that come with that picture, like Top Gun type stuff. But she's going to get to do it in outer space with X-Wings and all that kind of amazingness. Um, and I, I kind of want to just talk about that for a second because there, there's been some added information that came out since that announcement was made. Like for starters, the way that this whole conversation happened where the opportunity landed on her lap was that on Wonder Woman 1984, there was apparently a lot of crossover between her 
crew and the crew that regularly works on Star Wars over at Pinewood and works with, you know, Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy and all those wonderful people. So there was a lot of crossover there that they, you know, she, she kind of said that the two sets were somewhat copacetic. The Star Wars set of the world and her Wonder Woman 84 set were uh, friendly sets, if you know what I mean. And uh, there's a cool quote that came out from Jenkins about this. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. She said, what happened was Lucasfilm just approached me and asked, would I ever be interested? And I said, it would really depend on what the story was. I just always want to make sure that I feel I can make an amazing movie. And when they said Rogue Squadron, I almost gasped because I couldn't believe that they were so wise to know and somehow into it that that's exactly what I've been dying to do for so long because of my past and growing up around fighter pilots. It really is a movie I've been dying to make. I spent years trying to make a movie about Chuck Yeager. So this is just a huge honor to get to take this on. Full disclosure, I have no idea who Chuck Yeager is. But based on the context, I can only imagine that he's some great fighter pilot of some renown. But, um, yeah, listen, I'm always a big fan of you take a talented individual, you give them a subject that sparks joy. Give them a subject that sparks their imagination, that sparks joy, and then let them create. So, in this particular instance... If we have Patty Jenkins, not just like, all right, I'll do a Star Wars movie. Why not? It's a Star Wars movie. It'll be a great paycheck. It'll, you know, it'll be whatever. You know, you have her approaching this, not just like, I'm going to do it, but rather, I only want to do it if it's about something I love. And they happen to give her a suggestion that falls right in line with a movie she's been trying to make for years. And I'm a big fan of that sort of thing. Yeah, because you can take the most talented director in the world, but if it's just on a hired gun sort of basis, if they're just coming in from the outside to bring someone else's vision to life, I think that gives us, you know, that, that sort of puts a cap on how epic this project is going to be. It's mainly an assignment for this filmmaker. But when you get a filmmaker who's excited and passionate and is already bringing a lot of energy and a lot of thought into what this movie will be and how it will feel and how it will play out, that tells, you know, that right off the bat sets off your project on a great start. You're off, you know, you're kind of off to the races when you have a filmmaker who has been given a, a story or a character or a particular type of plot that really speaks to them, I think that creates the best kinds of movies. And that, to me, that's one of the beautiful things. You know, I guess I wasn't going to go into this just yet, but I can mention this now because this doesn't go into any spoilers. What I love about this Rogue Squadron thing and what I love about what's going on in The Mandalorian and what I love about what's going on with all of these projects that were just announced is that it's pointing out that this blank canvas of Star Wars is really a gift. Because if you think about it, the Star Wars galaxy that George Lucas gave birth to allows you to tell any kind of story in the world. Really. Depending on the planets that you choose and the tone that you stick to and the aesthetic choices that you make, you can tell any kind of Star Wars story. 
You know, you could have one that's like a Western. You could have one that's like a samurai. You could have one that's like about a group of elite fighter pilots. You could have one that feels more like espionage, like Rogue One trying to steal the Death Star plans. You could have one that's more just like an action adventure, like Solo, a Star Wars story. You could even have like detective noir. Like I was thinking about that. How cool would it be in a couple of years to get like a, a series that stars Dash Rendar from the Shadows of the Empire. And you give it more of like a detective noir feel. Like, you know, he goes on these different assignments doing odd jobs. Or different. I mean, honestly, Mandalorian could have been that if they stuck with the, the bounty hunter conceit where like every episode he's working for a different boss. But instead they went for like an overarching story. But imagine a more like detective driven noir story with like a mysterious you know, grovelly Dash Rendar type character. You know, you could really tell, you, you could tell a love story like George Lucas did in the prequels. Not that well, mind you. But, you know, he made Attack of the Clones very much like a love story about Anakin and Padme. You know, that's the beauty of Star Wars, that the only limit is your imagination. And you could take any filmmaker, any storyteller, and say, okay, what is a story that brings you to life? What is a story that excites you? Okay, great. Now set it in space. And if you, if you ask me, it's also like it's a gift to the filmmaker too. Because sometimes you have storylines and, and ideas in your head that one of the big obstacles is, yeah, but how am I going to sell this? You know, I think about Todd Phillips and, and Joaquin Phoenix and that Joker movie. Where, you know, there were quotes that came out while that film was getting made about how essentially this was a story they wanted to tell more so about mental illness, about what's going on in society and all this other stuff. But they knew they couldn't make a movie like that. And or if they did, five people would see it in an art house theater in the village. But you take that same character and throw some clown makeup on him and say it's the Joker and it's related to the Batman property and that movie made a billion bucks. So sometimes you could take like an outside, deeper, more metaphysical, more layered, more intriguing and loaded with heft sort of idea and then you slap a more commercial branding on it and now you can share that same neat story with a much wider audience. And like I mentioned last week, at the end of the day, storytellers want to share their stuff with as wide an audience as possible or, or with as large an audience as possible. And that's kind of the amazing gift that is Star Wars. Because literally, you could take any great filmmaker and ask them for different ideas they've had, whether it's a heist movie, whether it's, um, you know, a buddy cop type movie, whether it's, uh, you know, the Seven Samurai type movie, whatever it is, filmmakers tend to grow, you know, they have ideas that they kick around in their head. And the beauty of the Star Wars galaxy is that it's limitless. You can adapt and transpose just about any story you want up into the cosmos and add spaceships and, and make, you know, and, and different planets to create the different vibes and the different locations and, 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 and feels that you want this story to have. Just invent planets that have those feels, <laughs> you know, and you want to have a scene where your hero is, 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 is floating through a futuristic city where the gravity's not so great and whatever, invent a planet where that happens. You know, like Star Wars allows the filmmaker to really kind of just go crazy with their imagination 
and tell whatever kind of story it is they want to tell. I mean, look what Ryan Johnson did. You know, Ryan Johnson with The Last Jedi told a story that was clearly very personal to him and had a, you know, he had like a, an overall mission statement for what he wanted to happen with Star Wars that he was able to weave into The Last Jedi. You know, it, it's, it's, it all just speaks to the fact that storytellers in this very fertile franchise can really kind of like go explore any territory they want. So here, Patty Jenkins had a movie about fighter pilots that's been in her head for years. And then Lucasfilm came and said, okay, why don't you just tell us that story? But with X-Wings, you know, so I just, I think that's pretty cool. I think it's pretty amazing. I think it opens up the imagination. And when I look at stuff like the Mandalorian or when I look at Star Wars in general, you know, it reminds me of being a kid. It reminds me of when, when, when I was a kid and I take out my big, you know, box of action figures and I would create these vivid stories with them, even though they were all mismatched characters. You know, here's a cowboy talking to an alien from aliens and they're going to go fight Sergeant Slaughter, who's working with Darth Vader. You know, and like the toys would be, you, know, you you would see all of these sorts of like mismatched characters and archetypes working together in the same story. And when you look at Mandalorian with all the different types of creatures, be it aliens, be it humans, be it people who look like samurais, people who look like cowboys, people who look like, you know, when I look at stuff like Mandalorian, it looks like a kid playing with their mismatched action figures. You know, it, 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 it takes me back to being under 10 years old with all my action figures, creating a mythology that somehow fit all of these very unique and seemingly diverging types of characters. So having Patty Jenkins come into this world of Star Wars is a big gift. And the way that this story, you know, that this movie came to be, to me is very encouraging about the sort of open format that Lucasfilm is taking with speaking to their filmmakers. They are more so reaching out to the talented people first. And instead of saying, we want you to make this movie, it's more so, well, what's a movie, what's a story that you would like to tell? Oh, then tell it in Star Wars. And I think that's pretty amazing. I think that's really exciting. And um, Rogue Squadron, I mean, listen, you know, I would love to know exactly what it's going to be about. You know, it is a little vague, right? We haven't seen a movie that's more so about like an entire crew of people. I mean, I guess kind of Rogue One was sort of like that, but it really did focus more mostly on uh, Felicity Jones's character. Um, but yeah, I'm very in for Rogue Squadron. So I'm, I'm sorry I didn't mention that last week. But as you can see, there's a lot about this news and a lot about where Star Wars is going that really excites the hell out of me. Um, but now we're going to change on over there, there's a lot of news that came out of the, uh, the Snyder cut corner of popular culture. So we kind of need to unpack a whole lot of that because something that's changed in the last week since we've spoken is we now have our best idea yet of when Zack Snyder's justice league is actually coming out. Because if you recall, a few months back, there was some sort of like leaked uh, document, whether it was promotional in nature 
or some sort of like inter-office memo type of deal. There was a leaked thing pertaining to the Justice League that had it slated for September of 2021. And that seemed to be the initial thought going into it, which to me struck me as odd. I'm like, why would you wait that long? You have a mostly completed movie sitting there and you have all of these other streamers and networks that you know haven't been able to create blockbuster entertainment this year because of the pandemic. So doesn't it behoove them to get this out way sooner? You know, September struck me as odd. Like, you know, now it's just going to get caught up in all of the other end of year blockbusters that are going to get to come out now that the pandemic is slowly, you know, winding down in such a way that there are plenty of films that are filming like Mission Impossible which Tom Cruise just went insane on the set which if you haven't heard him go off on the crew it's pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> um but you know the releasing the film in September of next year felt like you're missing part of the benefit Part of the, the 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 perk of having Zack Snyder's Justice League just basically sitting there on some hard drives means that you can get this out at a time when no one else can provide that kind of entertainment for a while. Uh, and that's why this news is so welcome. There was an exchange on, of all places, Vero. Tell me if you, stop me if you've heard this one before. A fan uh, says something to Zack Snyder on Vero, and then Zack's response becomes a news story in and of itself. Have you heard a story like that before? But it happened again because somebody was lamenting something about the theatrical cut of Justice League. And he responded and he said, I understand and, of course, respect your feelings, and I just hope. I can wipe that version out of existence with what you see in March. In March. So there he goes basically confirming, or it seems to be confirming, that Zack Snyder's Justice League is arriving in about three and a half months. So it actually is on its way very soon, and it is going to be arriving at the tail end of this winter when no other streamers or places are going to be able to offer you entertainment that looks and feels as grand as the Justice League movie. So that's pretty exciting. But what also got you know, uh, confirmed and... You know, I, I'm not sure if this was out there uh, much sooner than this. All I know is when I was on the Shanleyan on Batman podcast last week, uh, Justin and Kyle mentioned that they didn't really know that it was going to be a miniseries. So I'm not sure if this is all that well known just yet. But not only is it confirmed to be a miniseries, but Jason Kalar seems to have confirmed that it's going to be four episodes. So, you know, there was some up and down about that. You know, what can you do with a four hour movie? Can you cut it into six episodes if it's like, you know, six 45 minute episodes? But it's looking more like four episodes of almost an hour each. So, OK, so yeah, things are starting to come more into focus about this Justice League. And something else that's sort of come out are who are the actors who've been able to take part in the reshoots? Because in October, Snyder did manage to film some additional material. And as of now, the actors who have seemingly been confirmed to have returned for additional filming are Amber Heard's Mira, Joe Manganiello's Deathstroke, Jared Leto's Joker. And then what gets interesting here is... 
while Henry Cavill was initially rumored to be returning, he eventually debunked those rumors and said he's not coming back for additional filming. Ezra Miller did some extra filming, but it was all done through like video call. It wasn't, you know, he didn't come and actually film some new stuff because he's currently working on Fantastic Beasts 3. So that's interesting. So, so Ezra Miller's Flash did film something, but not in the flesh. And there were also rumors that Affleck himself was going to put the cowl on and film some additional stuff. And what I find intriguing about that is that that hasn't been debunked. And I feel like a lot of this news about who's coming back for the reshoots happened at around the time or within the same window of time when Affleck was rumored to be, I mean, not rumored, was confirmed to be putting on the costume again for the Flash movie. So part of me wonders, like, did they already film Batman stuff for both movies in one full swoop? You know, because Affleck is already, he's been lining up all kinds of projects. He's going to be busy for the next several years. So part of me wonders, like, did he film some stuff for the for the Snyder Cut? And did Muschietti get him to film whatever it is his parts are going to be for The Flash? I don't know. It's That part's probably unlikely because it doesn't appear that The Flash has begun filming yet. But there is just a part of me that wonders if uh, Affleck, you know, is going to be in costume again for the Snyder Cut. I don't know. I don't know. What's interesting is Cavill debunked returning. Affleck never debunked returning. So that's just something to kind of keep an eye on, right? Um, and while we're talking about Batman, you know, one of the things that, that, that got a lot of attention earlier this week is that this director's cut of Justice League, according to Snyder, is looking to be more than likely rated R and that Batman will be dropping some F-bombs. And, uh, you know, some people had a lot of fun with that news earlier this week. And, you know, I was asked to share my opinion about this, which is funny. Because just a week ago, I think I answered a question very similar about, you know, what do I think about a theatrically released Batman film that is rated R? Am I, you know, what is my sort of knee-jerk response to such a project even existing? And at the time, I kind of came out in defense of it. You know, I kind of said, listen, now we live in the age of the multiverse where we could have different versions of all these different characters. So, yeah, if there's a rated R Batman, so be it. You know, there will be a PG Batman that, that, that kids can watch or a PG-13 Batman that kids can watch, you know, elsewhere. So, listen, if that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. But with this talk of Justice League rated R, you know, I guess I guess I have to point out that I'm still a little tainted from the experience I had three or four weeks ago watching the Ultimate Edition with my family. Because, you know, the Ultimate Edition of BVS was rated R, and it ended up being a much harsher watch for my kids, a lot less enjoyable, and a lot kind of like harder to get through because of the more grown-up content. And this is a week after they, the kids fell in love with Man of Steel. So I guess my main thing is this. I don't mind if a particular storyteller wants to skew things more adult with their version 
of a, of a property or of a character. You know, I, I'm all about artistic expression and creative freedom. That's great. But I do in general, and I have for years, regardless of Snyder, regardless of the Justice League, regardless of DC on film or any of this stuff. By the way, if you hear a, a dog barking in the distance, that's my dog barking upstairs at probably the mailman coming to drop off some Christmas gifts. So you'll just have to deal with the barking dog. Um, but, you know, when, as a rule, when I think about ratings in movies, I'm a strong believer that whatever your first movie in the franchise is, everything should kind of dovetail from there. Everything should follow that lead. Because in theory, that first movie is the beginning of the story, right? It's entry one in a multi-entry story. So whatever that first one is, that should set the tone and that should also educate the audience of who's, you know, who's going to come back and who isn't going to come back for the sequels in terms of the fans. And considering Man of Steel was PG-13. And it did, you know, it, the, the story did present itself in a way that kids could really dig on. And, you know, this was story one in Zack Snyder's DCEU arc. So to me, Man of Steel should be the archetype. It shouldn't get more violent or 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 foul-mouthed or uh, all that kind of stuff after Man of Steel. Like it, it, it doesn't make sense to me to basically go, okay, we're inviting you for step one. But hey, if you're interested in step two and three, guess what? You can't watch it. You know, in, in terms of what that says to kids. You know what I mean? Because here he gave us Man of Steel, this beautiful, aspirational, inspirational Superman tale with this huge, you know, action at the end. And it, it, it's a movie that if you're like, if you're a little kid, you're going to fall in love with Superman here. You're more than likely going to have a very strong connection to the character and you're going to want to see the continued adventures of Superman. But BVS, the ultimate edition, which was Snyder's intended follow through, was much more grown up than Man of Steel. And Justice League sounds like it's going to be more of that, too. And I just, as a rule, I think it's weird to basically change the rules, you know, to kind of like change everything up. You know, it's, it's like it's like if you're inviting guests to your house and you're saying that, like, every week I'm going to have this get together on Fridays and it's going to be like this. And you invite 50 people over and they come by on Friday. This is all obviously pre-COVID. But you have 50 people in your house and you're doing these you know, certain kinds of activities. Like, okay, we're going to all do puzzles and listen to Frank Sinatra music and, uh, and wear cartoon t-shirts this week. Okay? And everyone comes and they have a great time. Now, when you send out the invite for next week, you're like, okay, and now next week we're going to watch heavy metal and there's going to be a virgin sacrifice and uh, some of you might die. Uh, you know, it's weird to change the rules up <laughs> between gatherings. And to me, that's what happened here, where we started off with a family-friendly PG-13 franchise, and then Snyder's just been getting darker and more violent ever since. And to me, that's, again, it doesn't make sense, even from a business standpoint. You know, you want to offer uniformity. You want to offer like, 
Hey, so this you liked this experience? Come have more of it. You don't go, okay, now we're going to drastically alter that experience and make it so that only older folks can enjoy it. So all you kids who had liked it the first time around, you're going to have to wait several years to watch parts two and three of this story. You know, so th th that is my main thing when I hear about Justice League getting R-rated. It just, it, 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 it interferes with that pet peeve of mine that whatever the first film is, um, everything should sort of follow that archetype moving forward. You know, and to me, like one of the only notable, um, I guess you could say, uh, exceptions to that would be Logan, right? Because when we first met Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, he was in a series of PG-13 movies. And it was, you know, and, and that's, you know, and that remained true for a very long time. But then James Mangold made the decision to make Logan like a hard R sort of story. And in a way, you know, that that would kind of rub me the wrong way, because now you're going to exclude the kids who love Wolverine. Now they can't watch the final chapter of his saga, you know, but I guess I, I gave it some leeway because it clearly seemed to be kind of on its own island. You know, it had been after 20 years of Hugh Jackman playing Logan. Practically, it had been 17 years at that point. But you know, it had been after nearly two full decades of him playing the role. And this was going to be kind of its own on an island swan song for that character. So I kind of, you know, let it, quote unquote, happen with Logan. But as a rule, I am firmly of the belief that whatever movie one is, that should also be what movie 10 is because that, you know, you've already set out who your audience is. Don't change up the rules on them along the way. It just strikes me as odd. And this Justice League movie is not going to be its own little quiet thing like Logan, where it really just focuses on him and one other familiar character. This is Justice League, about six of the most iconic superheroes ever fighting their most one of their most iconic DC Comics villains ever. You know, it just strikes me as like, why make this more restrictive? Why make the audience for this smaller when this is a big broad story that should be enjoyed by people who've been excited about the Justice League for the last 70 years. You know, to me, it's just odd to make the, the audience smaller on something like this. But that said, uh, come March, I will be checking out those four episodes of more than likely rated R Justice League goodness and enjoying it, understanding more so that these things exist in sort of a vacuum. And that if I want to watch a gentler version of the story, I've got the theatrical cut, you know, and my kids did enjoy the theatrical cut. And uh, like I said, we're in a multiverse now. Everyone gets their own favorite version to cling to. So if that's what we're going to do, that's what we're going to do. Rated R or not rated R, that's what's going to happen. Um, but in terms of the the extra scene that was filmed or extra scenes that were filmed because that's something I haven't brought up here on the show since the news came out but Snyder has confirmed in recent weeks that what he filmed was essentially four to five extra minutes worth of footage so you know, remember that was a big conversation here on this show about four or five episodes ago just trying to figure out like how much more is he going to film how, in, in how many ways is he going to reshape 
the things that he filmed back in 2016 to turn this story into a four episode miniseries instead of one four hour movie. You know, there were a lot of kind of unknowns about that. But according to the man himself, it's only actually been about four to five minutes of additional footage. And there was an interesting bit of phrasing there, too, in one of his recent quotes, where it's like it's four to five minutes in this four hour movie are new. So that tells me it's not necessarily that there is just one new scene that was added somewhere in there. It's a cumulative sort of thing. You know, people don't realize when you're watching a movie, sometimes a scene that left a real strong impression on you uh, was maybe only 35 seconds long. So these four or five minutes he's added may work in all throughout those four hours, you know, throughout those four episodes of this miniseries. So that's one that's one thing to keep in mind, that if you've read that and are assuming it's just one new scene, uh, you have to kind of expand your thinking a little bit because it might be a minute here, 20 seconds there, a minute and a half there, and another 15 second there. You know what I mean? So we're going to see how it is that he intersperses this extra footage. But one of the rumors I've heard just from friends of mine and the back channels is that what he's adding into the mix is all nightmare related. Remember that nightmare sequence from BVS that Joss Whedon didn't follow up on at all in the theatrical cut? Apparently, what Snyder was working on when he did bring back some other actors and add some extra scenes for the, you know, add some extra dialogue for Jared Leto, who wasn't originally in it, for example, it's all in service of more of that nightmare timeline. So that, to me, is very intriguing. And trying to figure out how Mira plays into that, how Deathstroke plays into that, how Joker plays into that. You know, I, I listen, we know that he had a lot of ambitious ideas for what this nightmare sequence would be and how it would play out across the next couple of Justice League movies. So I guess it doesn't shock me that he invested more time and more energy and more storytelling equity in this nightmare timeline. I'm just curious, really, what the heck's it going to be? You know, and while we're in this space of like rumors about what is going into the additional filming and the additional work in general that's going into Zack Snyder's Justice League, while we're in this zone, let's also talk about the budget. Because... Initially, we heard like 20 million. Then we heard like 30 million. And lately, we this number has been getting tossed around willy-nilly of 70 million dollars. Now, listen, you could you could make a few movies for 70 million dollars. You know, the first Deadpool was made for 66 million dollars. So Snyder's getting a pretty significant budget here. And how does that square with four to five extra minutes? Where do you justify an extra 70 mil, right? Um, and listen, you know, you got to factor in, first of all, that this is spread across several departments. This is spread across special effects. This is spread across scoring. This is spread across editing. This is spread, you know, th there's a lot that goes into that price tag. It's not just like he spent it all on this one thing. But one of the things that I imagine and that I've kind of heard little whispers from little birds um you know one of the things that that money could be getting spent on are cg models 
of these heroes, of these actors, of these characters. Because again, not everyone was able to return for these reshoots, as I discussed earlier on in this episode. Certain people who originally were mentioned as coming ultimately said they couldn't like Superman, like Henry Cavill himself. So a part of me wonders, does this mean that we're going to be seeing a computer-generated Superman in, the, in these new nightmare sequences as opposed to having Henry back? And listen, that, that's going to be a polarizing thing, right? Because fans already were pissed off that we got a CG'd face on Superman for the theatrical cut because of the whole mustache gate. But now we're finally going to get the Snyder cut. And not only is it a CG face, it's a CG everything because they couldn't get Superman back for the additional work. And if this is the nightmare timeline where there's an evil Superman kind of working at the behest of Darkseid and all that sort of stuff, you know, that means there's going to be a CG black suit Superman aside from what he was able to film with Henry the first time around. So keep that in mind, too, because these... <clears throat> To have good quality CG is expensive. And to have it be photorealistic and resemble one of your main actors and be convincing enough to justify all of this added expense, it's got to look amazing. And that stuff is not cheap. So when it comes to that $70 million price tag, don't be surprised if a good portion of that is in service of digital stand-ins, of digital versions of some of the heroes and characters that Snyder was not able to bring back, you know? So just keep that in mind, too, and it might also explain that exorbitant um, price tag, you know? Um, and another subject, you know, while we're on this subject of Snyder Cut, something else that's interesting, and at first I thought one of my friends was making a big deal out of nothing, but Stephen Marshall, I owe you an apology, because there was a little like teaser commercial that Jason Kalar shared from HBO Max that had a, a, you know, some clips from Justice League in it, from the upcoming Justice League, the Snyder Cut. And this time, instead of it saying Zack Snyder's Justice League, as it said for the first few promo things, it just said Justice League Director's Cut. And <clears throat> Stephen kind of took that to mean that they've officially changed the title of the movie. And I'm like, no, we've, you know, in my head, I'm like, we've already gone through this. They've already made that Zack Snyder's Justice League title stick. They've already mentioned it a few times. It's been on other promotional materials. You know, they're not backpedaling on that. I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, I thought maybe, maybe just for the sake of this quick highlight reel, where they're, they're skewing more broad, where they don't want it to just be Zack Snyder's fans who freak out about it. They want it to be anyone who's watching it goes, oh, well, there's a, there's a director's cut of Justice League. Neat. You know, I thought it might literally be <clears throat> that it's still called Zack Snyder's Justice League, but just for this commercial, they said Justice League director's cut. But here's the interesting thing. On the official HBO Max website now, when you go and look for it, it's called Justice League, the director's cut. It no longer says Zack Snyder's Justice League. So that gives me a moment to kind of pause and go, hmm, what's that about? You know, why, <clears throat> why after several months of beating the drum of 
we are going to release Zack Snyder's version of Justice League once and for all after all the fans clamoring to see what Zack Snyder has done to now take his name out of it and just call it Justice League, the director's cut is kind of worrisome. But I don't think we need to see this as disrespect to Snyder because on the surface, it could seem like, wait a minute, is there some funny business going on here now where after selling us the Snyder Cut, the Snyder Cut, Zack Snyder's Justice League, etc., etc., now you're going to just erase his name from the title and just call it Director's Cut and make it sound like it's simply version two of the movie we already saw? You know, you could see that as why are they backpedaling on the Zack Snyder branding, right? But what if that's not what they're doing? What if this feeds in to that little conspiracy theory I shared last week? The conspiracy theory that this version of the movie is a much bigger deal moving forward than we originally thought. What if? What if the reason that they wanted to take off Zack Snyder's Justice League and just call it Justice League again is because this version is officially becoming canon now. And this is the version of Justice League from which follow-ups and spin-offs and sequels could arrive. If that's the case, then you don't want to call it Zack Snyder's Justice League. Because remember, I, I, I even gave them credit. I said, calling it Zack Snyder's Justice League is a stroke of genius. I said, it's a great way to let his fans know, all the people who participated in that campaign of release the Snyder Cut, it's a great way of letting them know, here's that version of the movie that you've been asking for. You wanted Zack Snyder's Justice League? Here is Zack Snyder's Justice League. But I also said it was genius because to outsiders, this separates this Justice League from the rest of DC on film. It's saying, no, this isn't Justice League. This is this guy's Justice League. So enjoy this as sort of like a detour, as its own little on-an-island experience. So that title worked twofold, in my mind. You know, it worked to satisfy his fan base, and it also worked to set this thing as separate and apart from everything, so that nobody's expecting sequels and continuations. But if they're removing what separates it, and if all they're saying is, this is Justice League, just an alternate cut of it, that tells me that this story might be more integral moving forward. And that's why they want to move it off of Zack Snyder Island and just make it, hey, this is Justice League now, you know? So that's something else to kind of keep an, keep an eye on. I know there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not Snyder's Justice League will even be a hit or if it will lead to further projects set in this continuity. I know there's a great amount of skepticism about that, but we got to keep an eye on that because if they're no longer distinguishing this as its own thing that belongs to someone else, then maybe it's supposed to belong to all of us. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be very fascinating to kind of see how this all, you know, checks out. And, you know, Overall, we know it's checking all the right boxes for HBO Max because another update I can share with you since we last spoke is that now HBO Max is officially available on Roku. And I've been watching HBO Max on my Roku since Thursday now. And I love it. 
Um, and you know, th th that's all just part of HBO Max's big push. Ever since the news about Warner Woman 84, ever since the news about Warner Brothers' entire 2021 slate coming to them at the same day and date that those films arrive in theaters, ever since that news came out, and we've been here on this show discussing who does this really help? Is HBO Max really going to win here? Is Warner Brothers losing out on a ton of box office money? You know, we've been doing all kinds of sort of analysis on whether or not this move made any sense. But listen, the proof is in the pudding. HBO Max is now growing its footprint immeasurably. And now that Roku and Fire Stick and all the, 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 the mainstream sources are carrying HBO Max here in the States. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a game changer. This new approach, all of this, uh, all of what Warner Brothers is investing in HBO Max by bringing their entire slate there, despite it pissing off a great many filmmakers, despite all that, it's working. HBO Max is growing its footprint. It's being, it's becoming more available in more households and, I honestly feel like 2021 is going to be a really big year for, for the service because if I can draw a video game comparison, I've always said that what makes me buy a console isn't necessarily its price, isn't necessarily its capabilities, but rather what are its exclusives? What are things I can get on this system that I cannot get anywhere else. You know, when I was younger, that was the big thing because I was a broke kid and, you know, I couldn't own every system. So I had to make tough choices. Which system do I want to own? They're all around the same price. Uh, which one has stuff that I can't get anywhere else? To me, what it always came down to was exclusives. And what's funny is, too, in the video game industry, exclusives kind of went away in these last 10 years, which is why in this last generation, and I'll be, I'll be off this tangent very soon, and it all connects, I promise you. But that's why in this last generation, you know, the Xbox One kind of fizzled and the PS4 perhaps didn't do as great as it could have done. It was still a dominant machine. But when it came to the Xbox One and the PS4, there was a lot about them early on that seemed like this is basically the same machine. They have, it has all the same games. They just have some different, you know, little perks to having a particular machine, like how this one interacts with my cable box, like silly little gimmicky stuff. But since there weren't any great exclusives, it was hard to decide which one you wanted. And then a lot of people just went with PlayStation because most of their friends had PlayStations. And now what you see happening in the next generation of consoles is a renewed focus on exclusive content. Because in this day and age, that is how you distinguish and differentiate yourself on the marketplace. You communicate to your customer base or to prospective customers, hey, I can give you something the other guys can't. And HBO Max, like if you look at all the other streamers out there, they all offer very similar things. And I did bring this up last week, but just hear me out. They all offer the, the exclusive TV series and a few direct-to-streamer movies that exist only on those particular apps. But HBO Max now, in terms of exclusives, 
they can offer the entire Warner Brothers 2021 slate. So in terms of having exclusives, having in terms of having a, a selling component that puts you a head and shoulders above the rest, you know, Max is sitting pretty here because no one else can offer what they can offer. And now that they're on Roku, now that they're everywhere, I mean, the sky's the limit. Unless, of course, you're overseas, because that's something that Stephen Marshall brought up, too. That right now, you know, out in the UK and I even my friend Isaac in Sweden has brought up that they don't have HBO Max yet. So what's going to happen there? Right. Because right now that here in the States, everyone's celebrating that if you don't want to go to a movie theater, you can just see it on HBO Max. But in other countries, it's movie theater or nothing and not all countries out there are living in such a way that they can just go to theaters again. There are certain countries that have reopened and where the, the, the virus is no longer really a threat. There are, luckily, but there are many that aren't quite there yet. And those people are stressing out because this movie is coming out basically now in many international markets. And for these next few months, the only way fans overseas are going to be able to see Wonder Woman 84 and other, you know, uh, other Warner Brothers titles that are coming is to go and brave it and go out into theaters. And that is a, you know, that is a dangerous proposition. And all I could say is this. Warner Brothers or Warner Media or Warner Max, all of these entities know the generation that we live in. They know that piracy is going to be a huge factor. Now that they're letting these movies stream directly through a website, they know that this means that there will be pristine versions of these movies available on pirating websites within hours of these movies landing online. So that tells me that they're going to have to figure something out real quick. And I think they're going to. I think just like the Roku deal, it almost, it's almost like they knew that that would just fall into place. You know, they announced Wonder Woman 84 was to be arriving at the end of December. And look, the Roku thing arrived right in place a week before that. It's as if they know they're playing the hot hand and that they're going to have to get some deals done. And by basically creating this, this offering that people can't turn down, that other internet you know, entertainment providers are going to want to be a part of. They know that by offering that, a lot of other, you know, entities are going to sign off and bring HBO Max on board. So I guess my point is this. I think HBO Max will be more widely available in the coming weeks and months. I don't think international markets are going to have to suffer the way a few of you think you guys are going to have to suffer. I'm sure you will have some way of digitally watching all of these movies from the safety of your own home within a matter of weeks or months. I don't think HBO Max and, and their corporate overlords have overlooked the way piracy can absolutely kill everything that they're trying to do here. So I, I would just say sit tight. I would be shocked if you guys overseas don't have some other way of digitally seeing these movies in the very, very near future. And overall, I just feel like 
streamers are going to need exclusives to stand out. And right now, Max trumps everyone else when it comes to exclusives. Um, now I want to touch on Ray Fisher. The cyborg actor, you know, it's something I've brought up a couple times in recent weeks, and now there's there's been somewhat of an update. So I'm going to give you the update that he tweeted out in a series of tweets. He's Here's how he sort of summarized what's gone on between him and Warner Brothers now that the investigation has happened and now that there's been some sort of resolution for what happened while Joss Whedon was directing Justice League a few years back. Uh, he said... The investigation of Justice League is now complete. It has led to remedial action, some we've seen and some that is still to come. And this statement, and this statement, which reads, Warner Media appreciates you having the courage to come forward and assist the company with creating an inclusive and equitable work environment for its employees and partners. There are still conversations that need to be had and resolutions that need to be found. Thank you all for your support and encouragement on this journey. We are on our way more soon. Arts is greater than... Uh, sorry. <laughs> Accountability is greater than entertainment. Um, so let's talk about this, right? Because when this first came out, you know, I just kind of said, all right, show me the money. Show me the evidence of abuses. Let me let's find out some details of what went on on that set that was so egregious and that has him coming out swinging for people like Whedon, you know, Joss Whedon, Jeff Johns and John Berg. You know, I wanted to hear all of it because just based on the vague rumors and whispers and speculation that I was hearing it seemed a little bit over the top to be trying to get people fired and canceled forever over what happened while they're reshooting a movie under what are very strenuous circumstances and very bizarre circumstances, right? Where they brought in these major creatives to overhaul Justice League while Justice League was in production already. Instead of delaying it, they brought these people in to retool a train that had already left the station. So, you know, I kind of cut everyone in that equation some slack. I kind of felt like, listen, this was a hypertense, extremely unusual and bizarre situation. And I guess if tempers ran high and if certain higher ups had to crack the whip to try to get this thing done in time, then, you know, listen, I spare me your hurt feelings. You know, that's kind of how I felt about it when I first heard about it. But now that there's been an update, let's kind of unpack this a little bit because there was this reference to remedial actions have been taken and you know some that have been made clear and some that are still to come. And in terms of things that have been done, I can't help but notice that Joss Whedon keeps losing jobs. Joss Whedon just had another project that he had uh, at another studio just get disappeared on him. And the, the issue when it comes to Whedon really is notable. And this is coming from me, someone who initially wanted to hear him out, who really wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. It really is very notable that Whedon is not working more, isn't it? Here's a guy 
who over the course of the last 30 years has given us the Buffy the Vampire Slayer IP, which gave us movies and two hit TV series and a very dedicated fan base. He also gave us the Firefly TV series, which gave us a movie and a huge cult following to save it and bring it back and a lot of pop culture characters that still live on and persist in the hearts and minds of fans around the world to this day. And in terms of this modern age we live in of shared universes and crossovers and all that sort of stuff, he gave us both the Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron, two billion-plus earning blockbuster spectacles that made Disney and Marvel Studios, the two biggest entities in Hollywood, in the world, he gave them a couple of huge victories in recent years by pulling together the very first superhero crossovers. You know, so he kind of like, here's a guy who's done some huge things, and yet, where has he been? Where has he been since Age of Ultron? You know, they announced that Batgirl series that ended uh, the Batgirl t- uh, movie, I should say, that ended up getting scrapped. Then he came on and did all of that like hush hush work on Justice League. And where's he been? It's been three years since Justice League. Where's Joss Whedon? Where is this guy? who is had all this success in these last 10 years and has been making such a huge name for himself over these last 30 years. Why isn't Hollywood falling over itself to give this guy work? Where is he? Usually, you know, we play the hot hand. We play it to death. You don't think Joss Whedon would have been invited to Star Wars by now if he was a pleasure to work with? You know, and I guess that's what I'm getting to. I'm starting to wonder if... You know, uh, we got to read between the lines here on what Fisher's been saying about Whedon. Maybe Fisher's not the only person who feels this way. You know, I know that Whedon's got had a couple other detractors over the years, but they seem like these really small, isolated incidents. And they were incidents that you could explain in a myriad of ways. There was nothing that seemed like, oh, well, this is a pretty open and shut case about who the douchebag is here. But... If we're going to look at the fact that Whedon has not been really working in years, it really makes you wonder if maybe he really is just a douchebag that nobody likes to work with and maybe do feel like he's not worth it. And people do feel like he's more trouble than he's worth. Maybe it's his ego. Maybe it's the way he carries himself on set and the way he speaks to others. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but in this age of... We need people who can create large-scale geek spectacle that can make billions of dollars. This is an era that's tailor-made for Joss Whedon, and yet nobody's hiring the guy. So I'm starting to kind of turn the corner and think that, you know what? Maybe Whedon uh, should be dead in the water. Maybe there's something going on there that we don't need to hear the specifics about. That other people who have heard the specifics have basically said, well, I don't care how much money he can make me. I don't care that he made two huge Avengers movies. I don't care that he was basically the grandfather of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, I don't want this guy working on my movies. To me, that's very sort of uh, revealing and telling in and of itself. And if this is true, 
if Whedon came onto the set of Justice League anything but gracious and humble and modest about the task that lied ahead for him, then screw that guy. Because really, you know, when I think about that whole situation with Zack Snyder's daughter dying, with the studio coming in and basically throwing a Hail Mary and saying, listen, we're not happy with how this movie is turning out. Can you please come in and, and, and change a lot of stuff? You know, when I think about that scenario that he walked in on when he came to the set of Justice League to do all those extensive reshoots that he did in the spring and summer of 2017, when I think about that, I think about you should come into that situation with your hat in your hand. You come into that situation with a cast and a crew who've already been working on this for years because a lot of these people were carryovers from BVS. So this is like a family unit that's been working on these movies since 2015. And you're the guy who's been brought in to basically say, hey, you know, all that work, everything you've been building towards, we're going to flush it down the toilet and turn this into a completely different kind of movie. So if you're walking into that sort of scenario, it behooves you to tread lightly and respectfully, especially when you know that the guy who was calling all the shots is currently at home mourning his dead daughter. So if Whedon came in and was basically, you know, bossing everyone around and heavy footing his way through this post-production process and treating people with less than respect and less than grace, and less than kindness, then this might explain why he hasn't worked in three years. This might explain why there is this vendetta against him now. And you know what? If he did come in and treat the cast and crew like they were just cogs in a wheel for him, and he wasn't sensitive or delicate about <clears throat> the insane situation that he was walking in on and trying to tread lightly. If that, you know, if that's the kind of person he is, then, you know, it's very disappointing, but it explains a lot. But when it comes to Jeff Johns, what's notable there is <clears throat> it's less clear to see what happens with Johns because they already sort of punished him. He already got his comeuppance after Justice League. Just a sort of review. <clears throat> Sorry. Heading into Justice League, he had been named the president of DC. And he was given basically an executive role. He had gone from being a creative type on a few DC projects to being the guy who's basically deciding what DC on film looks and feels like. And when Justice League failed to do what they'd hoped it would do, he got demoted right away. He got moved out of that president position and just became like a lower level, a creative and a producer at his own production house. And the big sort of, I remember there, there were like statements released too, that basically, you know, it wasn't working out for him as an executive but they still like his ideas. And not a whole lot has changed. He has not been named an executive at DC, and he seems to not have any power over others anymore. He's just a creative brainchild. 
that they mine for shows like Doom Patrol and Titans and Stargirl. And, you know, he worked on a, several of these DC films and they happened to be the DC films that were best received. So what do you do when it comes to Jeff Johns? You know, because again, if you look at the first wave of DCEU films, which is the one that was best received? Which is the one that had the best praise from critics, the highest cinema score from fans, and the best box office success in terms of profit, in terms of overperforming expectations? That would be Wonder Woman. And Jeff Johns is an uncredited writer on Wonder Woman, and he was on that set. He worked with Patty Jenkins a great deal on Wonder Woman. And the same is true with Wonder Woman 84. That, listen, that's another thing that's happened since we last spoke. The review embargo has been lifted, and all of the early buzz on Wonder Woman 84 is that this is another great superhero movie, that this is a great, you know, this is going to be an awesome holiday film and an overall great win and experience for DC fans and in general for the DC on film world. So here you are again where another Jeff Johns, you know, joint, something that he worked on is being praised and beloved. And it's not just in the Wonder Woman corner of the world that Johns has had his influence felt. Because remember, what was the next movie after Justice League? Because listen, Justice League basically bombed. It opened to 92 million bucks. It didn't turn a profit. It was a big black eye on the DC Cinematic Franchise. But what was the next movie? The next movie was Aquaman which Jeff Johns worked alongside James Wan on. He helped with that creatively a great deal. And how did Aquaman do? Aquaman became the first DCEU movie to crack a billion. And again, that's with Johns being involved in the project. And then after that, we had Shazam, a movie that turned a profit, that got great reviews. It may not have been a huge hit, but it was another win for DC. So aside from Justice League, which was kind of a thankless situation that hardly anyone could have made a win out of, which is why, by the way, in hindsight, they should have just let well enough be alone. They should have just let Snyder do his four hour movie and we see what happens, because especially at this point, if they're releasing it on HBO Max and if it's becoming canon now, like. In hindsight, all of this stuff with Whedon, all of this overhaul with Berg and Johns just feels so unnecessary and like such a waste of time. But with Johns, the lesson that they seem to have learned was we love this guy's creative ideas. We love his his thought process, his vision for these characters, the way in which he looks at the DC universe seems to be a way that a lot of audiences connect to. You know, listen, they, they obviously think Titans is good because they keep you know, they they've renewed it and it's one of the cool exclusives on HBO Max now. They, that's continuing over from the DC Universe app. They must be into Doom Patrol because that's crossing over from the DC Universe app. Stargirl is still going strong. You know, like they clearly are still working with Johns and they seem to feel that him as a creative force still brings a lot to the table. 
They just don't think he should be an executive. He shouldn't be anyone's boss anymore. And a part of me wonders if that is kind of all Fisher had to hear, you know, because he sounds pretty uh, content with what's going on. You know, he seems content with Whedon being banished and, uh, you know, he doesn't, you know, I mean, listen, we're going to see what happens, right? He said that there's still some remedial action that'll become clear uh, down the line. So who knows, maybe in a couple of weeks, we're going to hear that Jeff Johns has officially parted ways with all things DC soon. And then we'll find out, ah, okay, so that was part of it too. So I guess they did find out that Johns did something terrible. But I would not be surprised if Johns does keep his job. But part of what came out of this investigation was them telling Fisher that this guy is never going to be responsible for hiring and firing people. He's nobody's boss or supervisor. He's no longer going to make anyone feel the way he made you feel on Justice League. He's strictly just a writer now. He's just a creative type. He can be fired. His ideas can be disavowed. He's literally just a creative mind for us to pick as we work on DC, but he's no longer in charge of anything. And I feel like if I'm Fisher, that might be enough for me. Just knowing, okay, as long as this dude is never anyone's boss again and can never subject anyone or make them feel as, as, as minimized or unimportant as he made me feel, then I can live with that. Just keep him away from an executive's office and I can live with that. So we'll see. You know, a part of me feels like that's the way things are trending. And honestly, it's been the way things have been going ever since Justice League came out. You know, because Whedon was pretty much dumped right away. Berg's got reassigned to a whole other film division. And John's kind of just started focusing more strictly on creative pursuits. So, you know, I don't know how much more is going to change beyond that. But I feel like the, the happy resolution here seems to be John's will get to keep his job. But he's not in charge of anyone else's job anymore. So maybe maybe that is the outcome of all this. And maybe that's the best case scenario for all involved. Because when it comes to DC's representation in live action, you know, aside from Justice League, which, again, very few people could have made Justice League into a successful situation. Aside from Justice League. Johns has been on a real hot streak with DC these last few years. So I do not see them just completely cutting ties with him unless, of course, this investigation turned up some really egregious stuff with some really great evidence. And they realized, OK, it doesn't matter how many great ideas he has. He has to go. You know, if, if that happens, that'll be super revealing. But um, yeah, so good, you know, good, good on Ray Fisher for pushing forward with his, you know, with his concerns. Good on Warner Media for hearing him out and following through on that investigation. And good on them for taking whatever actions they've taken that make Fisher and others feel like, okay, we, you know, we, we can start healing and moving on from this now. You know, and, and last bit, it does seem to be Whedon, right? Because even Gal Gadot had a statement earlier this week while out promoting Wonder Woman 84. You know, she voiced her support for what happened with Ray Fisher. And she even vaguely and mysteriously alluded to having her own sort of run-in uh, 
with Whedon and dealing it with dealing with it right there on the set and going to the higher ups right there and nipping it in the bud as it happened. So that's why my takeaway from from what little we've heard so far is that Whedon was the real problem. So we'll see. And the proof is in the pudding because homie's not working anymore, is he? Uh, but let's talk about where he was working. Before I wrap things up talking uh, Mandalorian Season 2 finale, I just want to do one little bit of Marvel stuff because it's interesting. You know, I had heard from one of my filmmaker friends about a year ago that this next phase of Marvel films is going to surprise and impress people because they're going to be drawing from a much broader, richer tapestry. They're going to be pulling from 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 a very deep well of characters and mythology because if the first 10 years of the MCU were about setting the table for what would become Endgame, the next phase now is here is a fully alive, textured, three-dimensional Marvel Cinematic Universe and we're going to have these characters and mythologies cross over into one another a lot now because now we've sort of established the rules. We've established where a lot of these characters come from. We've established what their powers are. We have established what their allegiances are. So I was sort of warned that the next phase of films was going to almost be like all team ups. You know, remember when it was like a novelty? That like aside from Avengers, it was like, ooh, did you hear Hulk might be in Thor Ragnarok? That's cool. You know, and we heard about Civil War, where even though it's a Captain America movie, it's going to have a bunch of Avengers in it. You know, and it seemed like, again, it was like a novel idea to have these characters cross over in something other than an Avengers movie. But now if you look ahead to what's to come, it sounds like my filmmaker friend was right. Because we've got Spider-Man 3, which is going to have Doctor Strange in it and probably other interesting Marvel characters. We have Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which we know is going to have some sort of thing with alternate versions of characters and all that kind of stuff. In other words, I doubt he's going to be the only Marvel character in that movie. We've got Thor, Love and Thunder, or whatever it's called, the, 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 the sequel to Ragnarok that Taika Waititi is working on. And we know that in that, you know, Chris Pratt and, and possibly other Guardians of the Galaxies are, Galaxy characters are likely to show up. Just as I'm pretty sure we can expect Thor to have some, some semblance of an appearance in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So it, it seems like my friend was right. It seems like this next wave of Marvel movies is going to have like crossover team up elements just kind of there by default as just part of the stories that they're going to be telling. You know, so it seems like those first 10 years were setting the table and introducing you to all these different pockets and corners and characters of the MCU. And in this next phase, they're all just going to be around all the time, depending on the story being told. That it's no longer going to be like, here's a movie about just this one person. It's going to be movies that involve other characters. And uh, we're going to really kind of lean into the fact that this is a very fully fleshed out, very diverse world of characters. 
And that's just kind of like the default setting moving forward. So I just find that very interesting because Tessa Thompson, uh, who plays um, Valkyrie in the Thor movies and was also seen in Endgame, said um, with regard to the next Thor film where she will be the, uh, the queen or the king of Asgard, as you will, she said, I'd say there's some cool stuff going on. We have some new characters. We have some folks potentially from other pockets of the MCU. And then we have some folks maybe that we've seen before. So it just everything that we've heard about these upcoming Marvel films seems to sort of lean into this fact that they're going to be involving a variety of characters. So I'm very intrigued by that. We'll see. uh, We'll see if it ends up becoming like there's just too much going on. You know, maybe we maybe we're going to miss the singular focused movies or maybe maybe it's just it's time now for team-ups and crossovers to just be happening all the freaking time. You know, we'll see. They even said in She-Hulk that there's probably going to be other characters from other Marvel properties that are going to cross over into She-Hulk. So it just really seems like the future of Marvel is very broad in scope in terms of the types of characters that are going to be able to cross over and co-mingle and appear with one another. And I, for one... I'm uh, happy to see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. But something that we do not have to wait and see how it goes is The Mandalorian. So I'm about to head into spoilers for season two of The Mandalorian. uh, And then I'm going to be wrapping up. So if you don't want to hear any spoilers, you can basically take off from here on. Uh, Thank you for joining me for these first hour and 10 minutes of episode 120. Please be sure to leave me a review and tell your friends about the Fanboy Podcast. I want to see this show continue to sort of grow and find uh, and expand its audience. And um, thank you. But now we're going into spoiler territory. So last night I got to sit down and watch episode Eight of season two of The Mandalorian, and my jaw was on the floor for the final sequence. So where where to begin? Where to begin? First of all, this season's been great. I, you know, I know there. I've seen some folks talk about like was episode three necessary or was episode five necessary or you know sometimes yeah nothing really happened in this one or that one. I feel like those kinds of conversations miss the point. Not every episode of every TV series needs to move the plot forward in some immeasurable way. You know, sometimes it's just about expanding that world a little bit, showing us a little more of each of these characters, or even just as simple as letting us just spend more time with these characters or in this world. You know, that's something that I've always... um, that, that, that I took from something Jerry Seinfeld said many years ago, that the key to a good series, the key to a good TV show is about creating a place that people want to visit. It's not so much about the plot. It's not so much about the bells and whistles. It's about simply creating a place that viewers want to visit every week. And that on some primal level, 
that's why we love shows. It's not so much that I'm dying to see what happens with this character next week. It's, I like being in this place. I like spending time with these characters in this world, doing whatever it is that happens on this world. That's a place that I like to visit 45 minutes a week. I get to check out this place. And for me, The Mandalorian is that kind of situation. It's just a place I want to be in. You know, it, it's a mythology and a world that I love to hang out in with characters that I love to just see them living. You know, I don't need there to be these groundbreaking twists and turns and, and, and pioneering storytelling techniques and things I've never seen before. No, just give me a place that's an escape from it all and give me a place to spend time with my TV friends that I like being in. So for me, there was no wasted anything. There wasn't a wasted moment in this season of The Mandalorian because it was just a place I really wanted to be. And coming into this, I mean, you know, all this stuff with Boba Fett finally getting to be the badass that we all thought he was as a kid has been pretty cool. Um and getting to see his ship. I mean, listen, I, I don't want to get, I could do an entire video just breaking down all of the things about the Mandalorian that melted my brain in these last two weeks. Remember, I caught up. I, I, I was behind the rest of the world until about 10 days ago. And now I've seen the entire second season. So I just gobbled it down. But so there's a lot I could say. But in terms of this finale, we're at the end they brought us Luke Skywalker in all the black with the black robot hand and the big green lightsaber being the most badass Jedi warrior that we could have ever asked for. I mean, to me, that's wish fulfillment, right? For all the folks who saw The Last Jedi who were like me, who were like, I've spent the last... 30 years since Return of the Jedi, wanting to see Luke kick some ass, wanting to spend more time with Jedi Master Luke Skywalker so that when we got to The Last Jedi and he isn't really involved in the fighting and it's much more of like a poetic, you know, listen, I, I, I don't really have huge qualms with the way Luke was represented in The Last Jedi. It wasn't what I wanted going into it, but I appreciate what Ryan Johnson was going for. However, the Luke that we saw in The Mandalorian last night, that is the Luke that I was dying to see for all these years. I wanted to see him continue to grow into becoming the ultimate Jedi master and warrior. I wanted to see him take on students, his own Padawans. I wanted to see what, you know, how he carried on the Jedi legacy moving forward. I wanted to know you know, how the Jedi Order might attempt to rise as the Empire falls after Return of the Jedi. You know, there was a whole lot of territory that I was excited to see Luke Skywalker explore that we never did. You know, and in The Last Jedi, we kind of, you know, we kind of basically arrive at the end of that arc where he's kind of decided he doesn't really want to be involved anymore. So now having access to that Luke is pretty amazing. Not to mention, you know, it does not invalidate. In, in, in fact, in certain key ways, I feel like it adds to The Last Jedi. 
Because yeah, you know, some people have said like, yeah, are Favreau and and Filoni trying to like retcon Luke? You know, like this is the real Luke. The one in the Last Jedi is not. Blah blah blah. I've seen people like start having those debates. But remember, how does Luke show up in this? He shows up in that solo little X-wing by himself. It kind of adds to this trope of Luke as this independent warrior that we've now seen since Empire Strikes Back. It's him, an R2, and an X-Wing navigating the cosmos, trying to deal with certain things. So first we saw them go to Dagobah. We saw them go to the Cloud City. We saw them go to Tatooine to rescue Solo and Return of the Jedi. You know, him and that X-Wing have, had a, have a lot of mileage. And we know that in The Last Jedi, that X-Wing is at the bottom of the ocean, because he flew it there and just left it there, right? So we see that same X-Wing here. So this is just part of the story. This is, you know, this is while Luke is still out there adventuring and he hasn't taken on Ben Solo as a student yet. And he hasn't gone through the experiences that make him decide that the Jedi are dead and not worth it. You know, we're still in a phase where the Empire's just fallen and Luke is still a force for good, kind of working in the shadows, almost like almost like Darth Vader. You know how Vader was a was this shadowy, powerful figure who helped the Emperor conquer the galaxy. Now you have Luke as a similar force of like, if Luke shows up and you that green lightsaber comes out, you know you and your cohorts are probably dead. You know, Luke Skywalker is this like mythical figure. And he was treated as such by the way his introduction in this finale in The Mandalorian, where he's just silent but deadly, and he is an unstoppable Jedi fighting machine. And by the way, don't even get me started on the fact that yeah, on the parallels between Vader attacking all of those people at the end of Rogue One and then Luke attacking all of those death troopers at the end of uh, The Mandalorian. I love the parallels between the way those scenes were shot. And it almost seems like once again, we're getting to see the badassery that had only primarily been hinted at before. Right. So the same, they did it with Boba Fett. Right. Where we finally got to see Boba Fett be the badass we always thought he could be. But even in Rogue One, taking it back a few years now, you know, seeing Vader do that. I mean, we knew he was capable of it and we saw little instances here and there in previous movies and stuff. But in Rogue One, when he shows up and and kills all those people, um, it's the first time we really get to see what all the hype is about with Vader. And with Luke yesterday, watching him just take down that entire army of unstoppable killer droids was just like, oh my God. I was, first of all, when I saw the X-Wing, my ear perked up, my eye perked up. I'm like, hang on a second, an X-Wing? So this is a Jedi. And we know that Grogu was speaking to a Jedi rather intently from the Seeing Stone last week. And then when we saw the black, that he was wearing all black, I'm like, hang on a second. And then the green lightsaber came out of his hand and I lost it. I just lost my ever-loving mind. So, yes, 
the way that Luke was shown yesterday was amazing. If this means that in the years to come, we could see other stories with this version of Luke, and knowing that he's ultimately going to end up as a hermit on the island of Akto, there's still plenty of time, plenty of stories to explore. So to me, that's another one of the things about this that's so exciting. It makes me wonder if, like, is anyone else going to pick up this baton that Favreau has now passed on to the world? Where here, we've got, you know, here's a glimpse of what Luke was up to between episode six and episode seven. Is somebody going to pick up that baton and show us more of the continued adventures of Luke Skywalker before he ended up on Octo? You know, I, I just, to me, the possibilities of this are amazing. But also, like, look at the, look at the, look at the power of, of those closing images in The Mandalorian, where we're watching our star, Din Jardin, you know, uh, Pedro, Pedro Pascal's character, under, you know, he takes off his helmet, and we have Din Jardin face-to-face with Luke Skywalker discussing Baby Yoda, a.k.a. Grogu's future. And the fact that he's going to train Grogu or, or see, you know, if Grogu is meant to be a member of the Jedi Order. And we know ultimately he doesn't, by the way, right? Because by the time we get to Octo, it doesn't seem like uh, Grogu is really part of the story, is it? So I feel like there's a whole other avenue for stories now that it's been opened up for exploration. So more than anything, I'm excited for the future. But as a fan of Luke Skywalker, you know, I was always a Luke guy. You know, the kids growing up, you were either a, a Han Solo person because you liked the scoundrel or you liked Luke Skywalker because you liked that true blue hero on the quest. And I was always go figure for the Superman fan, but I was always more of a Luke guy. You know, Han Solo is more of a Batman character. Luke is more of a Superman character, if you ask me. And I've always been a Luke guy. So getting to see Luke in all his glory, do all the stuff that I didn't get to see him do in The Last Jedi. I mean, you know, what can I say? And look, you know, if I have to mention any negatives whatsoever about it, you know, the only part of me that was a little bit like, hmm, was that it's like once again, we're connecting a new property to the Skywalker you know, saga very intently. And that that's the only part of this, this that makes me a little bit anxious. You know, because part of what I loved about The Mandalorian was that it was forging a new path. That it was showing us a whole new facet of the, of the galaxy that we'd never really seen before and that it was going to explore sort of new territory. It's what it felt like. But having this entire two-series arc basically lead to a big Luke Skywalker reveal feels like, oh, so once again, you know, this offshoot is not as far of an offshoot as we thought. You know, so I guess, you know, there's just a part of me that really hopes that Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy and Favreau and Filoni, you know, I hope that they at some point become more comfortable with exploring storylines that have nothing to do with Skywalkers, that have nothing to do with Solos, that have nothing to do with the bloodlines we've already seen. Because 
I feel like we as a fandom are quite ready to move into completely uncharted territory. At least I am. So if there was any part of me that was disappointed by that creative decision, it was just that once again, here is something that felt like it could be new and different, uh, going very nostalgic again at the very end. But you know what? You know, Favreau and Filoni have really kind of shown that you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, you can explore new ground while also being nostalgic. And that is a balance that the filmmakers who handled the sequel trilogy didn't handle that well, did they? You know, episode seven, extremely nostalgic. Episode eight, some would argue, not nearly nostalgic enough, just completely trying to, you know, forge its own new path and redefine what Star Wars even is. And then nine, very nostalgic again. You know, with The Mandalorian, we've now learned, we've now seen, we've now experienced that you could tell a great Star Wars story that simultaneously reminds you of the great times while also inundating you with new adventures to go on along the way. So, you know, while I am a little bummed that we went back to the Skywalker well here within The Mandalorian, you know, you got to hand it to the team behind The Mandalorian because they've shown that there is a way to balance the two ideas while still making it feel fresh. Because you got to admit, None of this stuff with the Mandalorian felt like a rehash. None of this has been there, done that. While it's treading on familiar territory, none of the story plays out in a way that we've seen it play out before. So that might be the key to the balance, by the way. Not actually mimicking the plot points the way The Force Awakens did. And not completely throwing out the baby with the bathwater like The Last Jedi did. But by finding, like, by, by telling a new story that has some familiar and nostalgic elements that make it easier to, you know, for, to help the medicine go down, you ease it down the gullet with a little nostalgia. And I feel like that is kind of your ideal way to tell a Star Wars story. So all in all, this was a wonderful finale for The Mandalorian. I'm very curious where they go from here. Uh, it looks like, you know, the Grogu storyline is done. So does this mean now that we're going to see the Mandalorian on another long-form mission like this? And it looks like we're going to get a spinoff, because that's something we haven't discussed either. There, there's a post-credit sequence at the end of the Mandalorian that, see, that sets up a series called The Book of Boba, where Boba Fett takes over Jabba the Hutt's palace. I mean... That scene was another one where my jaw was just on the floor and I was shrieking and crying, you know, with delight. Um, so, you know, and that's going to be its own series. So I'm curious what kind of ground they're going to be covering there. You know, in general, you know, this all reminds me of something I was talking about two years ago, where when episode nine was coming out and it was still in production, there were quotes and things that came out to the effect of that after episode nine, there really aren't plans for another movie right away. And that people were like surprised by that after they'd been cranking out a Star Wars movie per year 
since 2015. Suddenly, we're heading into an unknown period where there weren't going to be Star Wars films for a bit. And I remember at the time, talking on this show and talking on the Revengers podcast about the fact that it would appear that Lucasfilm is going to use Disney Plus as its breeding ground for Star Wars. That they were going to use the Disney Plus platform to explore different facets of Star Wars and see what it is that lights the fan base on fire. You know, what it is that is going to basically mark what is the path forward for Star Wars. That they were going to use Disney Plus as basically their way to find out what do Star Wars fans want to see. And based on the variety of projects that have been announced, based on the buzz being created by the folks behind The Mandalorian... I think Lucasfilm, they're learning their lessons. They're learning what it is that, that a, any successful Star Wars story needs to have. And they're learning that balance between nostalgia and new, between old characters and new characters. And uh, that, that's one thing that seems to be coming of all this that I'm very excited about, too. That when we eventually do start getting Star Wars movies back on the big screen... It's going to be done with a lot more uh, knowledge and experience because they kind of went into the sequel trilogy blind, you know, and, and a part of me now kind of wishes that they held off, that they wouldn't have made episodes seven, eight and nine until the Mandalorian and other continued adventures post episode seven, no, post episode six took place so that they could then decide what episodes seven, eight and nine should be. You know, but listen, we can't, you know, we can't undo the sequel trilogy. So all we can kind of hope for, though, is that this next wave of Star Wars content fills in those 30 years between episode six and episode seven with stories that simultaneously show us new, exciting things and maybe even possibly enhance the sequel trilogy. You know, it would be really interesting if they did that. Because, you know, that, that was something that I loved about Rogue One. I love that Rogue One makes a new hope better. You know, I, if you're going to go in, ahead and, and, and explore timelines and aspects of the mythology that we've sort of explored already, at least add something that is so good that it makes the other stories around it better. And to me, a new hope, you know... By giving us all of that backstory on, on what sacrifices were made to get those Death Star plans, it adds to the specialness of A New Hope. Not to mention, it also explained away the big plot hole of why would the Death Star, this huge space station, have this obvious vulnerability? How could there be a place that you could shoot the Death Star that blows up the entire station. That never made any sense. It felt like lazy writing. It felt like convenience. It felt like, come on, George, you could have come up with something better than that. But by Rogue One making that part of the plot, like the guy who designed the Death Star purposely put a weak spot in it because he was against the Empire, that he was working on the Death Star against his will, that he wanted his daughter and her rebel friends to be able to destroy this death machine 
So that's why he put this one area in the center of the core of the Death Star that if you hit it with anything, the entire thing goes kaput. Now, that doesn't seem like a plot hole. That seems like that makes perfect sense that if you're the architect of this thing and you're doing it as an indentured servant, servant and you want to you want to see this thing go up in flames just as bad as everyone else does, then you're going to leave a sort of backdoor weakness to this Death Star, aren't you? So, you know, there are ways for these these, you know, spin-offs and and other tales to actually enhance and heighten what we've seen so far. So it would be really interesting to see if in the years to come, the upcoming Star Wars stories that flesh out the time between episode six and episode seven, it would be interesting if they add and make episodes seven, eight and nine play a lot better. You know, but listen, it's a shame that they should have to go back and try to clean up for what Johnson and Abrams did. But uh, maybe we need that. Because I'm starting to feel like Star Wars fans are turning big time on the sequel trilogy, even more so than they were before because of how amazing The Mandalorian is. So, listen, it's a a tough spot to be in. But for now, I get to see my Luke. I get to see expanded stories that take place after Return of the Jedi. I get to find out how the Empire rose from the ashes and then at some point became the First Order. I might get to see Luke go from being a Jedi warrior to being that hermit on Octo. You know, there's lots of interesting storylines that I might be able to get to see these next few years on Disney Plus that I'm extremely grateful for. And if we can get Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni involved in all of that stuff, uh, I think we all win. All I know is that I, as a Star Wars fan, I could not have been more excited to see Luke return and to see how that story played out. I mean, can you imagine getting that script, by the way? Imagine being Pedro Pascal or Gina Carano or anyone else who was in that final scene. And you're reading your pages and then it says, and then Luke Skywalker walks in. And you know, and there's dialogue between our star and Luke yeah, that must have been all kinds of goosebumps and all kinds of chill-inducing. And uh, that's certainly what it was while watching it. So, listen, uh, thanks to everyone who's checked out episode 120. Sorry I had to make you wait an extra day. Things have been a little crazy here on the home front. But uh, until next time, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.